Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're having a good one so far. We get today to talk with the Lieutenant Governor of North Dakota, Brent Sanford. Good day to you, Brent. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Jenica. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine. I'm very excited to hear more about uh, a recent study that was done. But before we get there, I kind of wanted to touch on some background about who you are and what you've been doing. I know uh, you're originally from Watford City, and you you devoted quite a bit of time there before uh, spreading your knowledge across the state. Right. The uh, I'm originally from Watford City, and so... What's unique about Watford City is it's between Watford City and Tioga. They basically fight for the title of oil capital of the state. And, Will- and Williston is Williston is pretty much the king, but that's because of the size and that's where the companies settle in. And uh, But the, the history is in 1951, after years and years of seismographing and knowing that there would that there w- there would be oil in the Williston Basin, they 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 struck oil. Uh, in the Tioga area, and then immediately after that, straight south along the Ness and Anacline in McKenzie County. And and so that area in McKenzie County is by little communities called Johnson's Corners and Keene and Blue Buttes, Charleston, etc. And that's where my homesteader families were from and where they settled in. And it's rough country that's not a lot of good for farming except for some isolated pockets. But, you know, homesteaders made their way and and made livings and made a living out of it, and and then all of a sudden oil comes along in the 50s, and so so then the the landmen and the the wildcatting and and the the drilling and the pipelining and the trucking all of a sudden came into into being in that area. So so my families are are pretty deep in it. There's there the history is something that we're fond of, and and um I, strangely enough, I don't have a lot of of oil entrepreneurs or oil engineers, et cetera, or, or even operators in my family. My family ended up being service providers to the industry, teachers, et cetera. Um, grandfathers were in the, in the um, service business with vehicles. Um, the, um, my dad owned SNS Motors. My grandfather owned SNS Motors before him, and, and that was the Ford dealer in Watford City. And they also were on city council. So that ended up kind of being my legacy, too. I went to, I went to the University of North Dakota, became a uh, CPA worked in worked in the accounting field for uh, eight years and and um, ended in, in Denver uh, working in the auto industry with Freightliner trucks and GMC trucks etc and and decided to move home and buy SNS Motors from my dad and and then followed followed my grandpa and my dad into politics as well so I became city council then in 2006 very soon after moving back. There wasn't a lot going on as far as oil field at that time, but there was a little bit of hope that there was something called horizontal drilling and fracking that that people were messing around with over in Montana that might get back into the center of the basin, which we knew where that was, and that's right around Watford City, the deepest part of the basin. And um, by the time my first term was up in 2010, the man camps and the drilling rigs and, and the trucking companies and the the search for water for frack jobs, et cetera, was rolling into Watford City in the center of McKinsey County, the largest county in the state and the largest oil producing county in the state historically and, and again today. And so that what happened in the Stanley area in Montreal County was that the infrastructure was overrun, the cities were overrun and, and man camps popped up and the trucks were destroying the lug the gravel roads on the county roads and a lot of chaos would had ensued and, and, and we had to we so so we immediately had to go to work um, 
lobbying the legislators and state government on keeping some of those tax revenues where they're where they're derived, where they're generated from. Make sure that we can keep the infrastructure together and build these communities, build these schools, et cetera, for the families when they come and the public buildings and, and be ready. And, and so I ran for mayor in 2010 and my first term at 2010 to 14 was during the, the utter chaos of the Bakken. And, and it was our, our population in Watford City went from 1,500 people to census estimates were around 7,500 at the time. And That's right. And, uh, Boom. And, and, yeah, and they went up higher than that. And so, I mean, you, you saw, I, I asked the director of the census under President Obama, his name was John Thompson, have you ever seen anything like this? Is there some someone I can talk to? He said, you'd have to go back to the gold rush days to find something like this. There's nothing like Watford City. And so so I was the mayor during that time trying to run a business with a young family. We had we had two kids um, during the time I was on city council, in addition to our daughter, Sydney, that was it was four years old when we moved home. And so, I mean, so Sandy and I were busy with young family and, and had a business where you couldn't hire people because the oil field wages were too high. So if you're in a service business that wasn't oil field, it was hard to actually do business. But you had all the opportunity in the world with that many more people around. So it was a busy time. But I learned the state budget. I learned I learned what it takes to get through the legislature and, and, and actually have bills passed that benefit your community because you have to compromise and show benefit for the rest of the state. So these studies that we were unveiling this week are very near and dear to me because these folks, Dean Dean Bankson and Nancy Holder and Brent Bogart were with us during those times. And so it's like going back in history for me to listen to them talk. And, and the, the, the fact is, is that oil tax revenues have a huge impact on the entire state, not just those four oil counties where 90% of the tax revenues in the oil come from, not just McKinsey County where half of all of it comes from, but the entire state. And so that presentation laid out the fact that half of our revenues generated in state government come from oil and gas. They, 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 they point out the fact that Cass County where Fargo resides is the largest recipient of tax revenues from oil and gas activity. And these are important things to bring to the rest of the state to remind them that it's important when you hear legislation, when you hear of concerns from oil country, that it's important statewide for the for the continuation of those revenues. And it used to be that Fargo's sales tax was basically the the engine that that drove the rest of the state. Well, now it's oil taxes coming from from those four counties, McKinsey, Williams, Dunn and Montreal. And so the, the study that was rolled out this week is, is just a further continuation of it, showing roughly 25% of employment and wages come from that sector. Um, again, 50% of the tax revenues, and that's because we we do we have very low taxes for everyone else. We actually have high taxes for oil and gas, but they still remain in the state because we have a friendly business environment. Uh, but our t- high taxes don't help them, but they they really help the state residents and and filling the coffers and keeping people with it. Fairly positive attitude about the industry itself, um, but the you know the so this is what the impacts were pointing out, and it's sponsored by Western Dakota Energy Association, which used to be called Oil and Gas Producing Counties, which is where the organization I was usually representing when I would be here presenting at legislative sessions before 2016. So yeah, I'm pretty pretty deep in the knowledge of how the oil industry works and how it affects local communities and how it affects the state economy and how how to work legislation through to uh, to help the entire state regarding oil and gas activity. 
Yeah, it sounds like your your previous background knowledge must have been absolutely invaluable to uh, your role right now. Um, that's that is quite in depth. I was wondering uh, what other than it's a very very important industry for North Dakota as a whole, um, what should be kind of taken away or derived from this study for the average taxpayer? What they, what should they be looking for from this? I think it's, a, I think it's learning. I think it's opportunity for education. It's, it's, it's understanding how important the oil and gas industry is to the state. Everyone knows agriculture is of absolute importance to our state. And, and so to, to also, if, if you're east of Highway 83, which is the highway that goes from Minot to Bismarck and splits the state in half, if you're east of Highway 83, you might not realize that that half of the state tax revenues come from there, that your property tax buy down on your property tax statement for a contribution to to offset K-12 property taxes comes from oil and gas. You might not realize that the, the water, rural water projects coming to your house are 80 percent, 75 to 80 percent subsidized by oil and oil and gas tax revenue, putting direct cash into those projects. So that's a less lesser water rate for yourself so it's an it, it's an education tool and it it helps uh with awareness not only on bills that are going through our legislature but i believe it helps all of us have awareness when you see federal programs and federal administration changes and federal directives that affect our industries and and, and to remember that waters of the u.s type initiatives coming from the federal government not only affect farming and agriculture but they 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 really affect natural resource development as well and, and the presumption that we are not stewards of our land as far as our energy development and our agriculture should be offensive to all of us because we are the best stewards of our land. We have the cleanest air and water in the nation. We're proud of it. We administer our, our own federal primacy from our Department of Environmental Quality and our Department of Mineral Resources. And I can tell you, statistics show that the, the industry that's under our state, direct state regulation is cleaner and more efficient more effective, more cost effective, and, and, this, and environmentally cleaner than those that are under federal jurisdiction. So, so we, it's an education process of what is important to the state's economy, where our jobs come from, and also helps us bridge the gap towards the future. And that one of those tools is the legacy fund. So that's a big discussion in this session now is how to invest our $8 billion sovereign wealth fund called the legacy fund, which is represented by 30% of oil taxes um, going into investments, which have been traditionally invested uh, at market within the financial markets to maximize return and minimize risk. And I'm the chair of that board, the state investment board as lieutenant governor. And now there are bills in place to actually consider how to invest some of those funds within the state to help diversify our economy and promote entrepreneurship within within the state. And so there's some exciting opportunities with the savings we've put in place from this oil activity. So do you think that this study might kind of embolden those individuals who are wanting still to get into the industry to continue to push forward and and jump in, even though things might look a little different right now? I hope so. That the thing is, is if you're from Western North Dakota, that question ebbs and flows. When when I was graduating from high school and going to college in the late 80s, my dad told me, you need to get a degree so that you can have a job. And that you, and you likely will not be anywhere near here and don't get any kind of a job in the oil business because there's nothing for you. In the late 80s, that oil had crashed to the point where there was not much of an economy left 
in West North Dakota and combine that with the drought, it was not looking very good. And, you know, I, I remember different class reunions where only you know, three out of the 70 people that had graduated with me were anywhere near Western North Dakota. So it was, it was pretty bleak for about a 15 year period there in the late eighties, early nineties or nineties and the early two thousands. And so, I mean, today what you see is a lot of opportunities for young folks to return home and to the areas they love with, with the beauty of the Badlands, the the hiking, the hunting, the Matahe Trail, the the um, opportunities for recreation with lakes. It's great. The, the Lake Skakawea flows throughout that the Bakken area, and so you're seeing young people moving back, and and they can be doctors, nurses, any kind of professional job as well. And that opportunity wasn't always there, but with the population growth, you can you can pretty much be any profession, and there's an opportunity back there. So yes, that the population has gotten a lot younger. The last 15 years when I moved home, the average age was, I believe, in the 50s or 60s. And um, the, the latest numbers you would see from Williston and Watford City are like the average age is in the late 20s. So it's in, they're incredibly young communities now. And so that that shows there's opportunity for young folks. And and so the, the thing is, is that as UND pivots towards having petroleum engineering and having uh, specialties in, in oil and gas law at their law school and NDSU, um, forges ahead with polymers and coatings and all the different types of, of activities that need oil and gas, you know, for their degrees. It's just, there's, there is a lot of opportunity here for our kids, for our children, our young people to, to redirect that. Bismarck State is an example where Bismarck State functions really closely with the, the midstream companies like One Oak and, and the wind companies and the coal companies. And so they've got a plethora of opportunities in one and two, one year certificates, two year degree programs, for energy workers, and, and there's you, you you don't need to move away. It's not the story that it was 30 years ago when my dad said, you know, get your degree and and we'll see you on holidays, and you probably get a job in Minneapolis or Denver. It's, it's just not that way today. So hopefully, the study just helps entrepreneurs and and um, and companies realize that there's there's still a brighter there's still brighter days ahead, and, and the future is is very positive. And the, the innovators always can make a buck in this world in the oil and gas that there's millions of dollars spent every day exploring for oil. And so the, the latest and greatest widget that tool that is created, built out in the oil field, you better be ready to build a million of them because every oil and gas company is going to want to copy it if you come up with a better way to do things. And so there's lots of stories in Willis and Minot, Bismarck, Dickinson, Watford City, Kildare of, of entrepreneurs that have created new technology and and then all of a sudden you know they're a very wealthy individual and so it's it's a very entrepreneurial place it's just a lot different than the entrepreneurial spirit you see in areas like even Fargo where it's egg equipment and egg technology and and biotech and now you have with Governor Burgum you have the IT sector very hot in in Fargo and it's a totally different vibe but it's still North Dakota you know and it's something where the west has the west has a different type of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit to offer yeah, each kind of its own animal, depending on on the area. Right. Well, I guess um, I I I'm kind of wondering about has there been much reaction or, or recognition, I suppose, on a federal level now that the studies come out? Do you think that it's it might help to kind of change the minds or maybe uh, merge to a happy medium between uh, state legislation and what the federal administ you know what the administration is trying to do federally? Well, the some of the sound bites and some of the highlights from the study are, are what Governor Bergen will reference when he's when he's issuing press releases and when you know urging gov- groups of regional groups of governors to to you know put out initiatives in protest to to the different 
executive orders we've already seen from the Biden administration. So yes, that the you know pointing out the fact that 90% of the revenues for the for the MHA nation, uh, Manhattan-Hadassah-Rikara nation, that's a large oil producing tribe in the middle of the Bakken, um, that 90% of their revenues are derived from oil and gas activity. That that helped make a difference on releasing those tribal minerals from the directives from the Biden administration to put a halt and, and moratorium on federal leasing and development on federal minerals. So so those these statistics from these studies are good backup for when you make your argument. That's for certain. Well, it sounds like it. And the the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the individuals that conducted the study they're they're actually university professors. Yes. Yes, from North, yep, North Dakota State University. That's that's fantastic. Lots of lots of good education then probably for those that get to take those their classes. Right, and they're the cool ones opportunity. Yes, and they're and they're the ones that have the same same researchers have done this since the 2005, I believe, is when they said they started. So yes, it's it's great continuity. Yeah, that's that's a that's a a few years then to be able to kind of look into uh, how everything has been affected. Right. Right. The tax revenues that the oil and gas industry brought into MHA and into the counties out west and into the state in 2005 were much different than today. And what's happened is our general fund spending has increased by a lot, which, you know, if you're if you're if you're a fiscal conservative, you look at that and you think that's not a good thing. But the fact is, our economy grew by multiples over at that point. And and some of the things that you note that are different from back then is, is, as I recall, the fact that our teacher salaries were so low. We were always, you know, in the bottom five, the not bottom five, you know, bottom yeah. number 47, eight or nine or 50 on teacher salaries. And now we're not. Now we're in the middle. And so, I mean, teacher salaries took a huge jump with the ability to have more tax revenue in the general fund and we we're, and we we're able to use oil taxes and that are that are hitting the general fund and push that back out to the local political subs so it didn't it did, so those teacher salary increases did not come from an increase in property taxes they came from basically moving oil tax dollars through the general fund and back out to political subdivisions back to school districts to help increase those budgets and and increase the pay because we we all know how important great teachers are to our kids and our future, and in the last year has been proof of that 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 oh, is yeah. of utmost importance. Oh yeah, absolutely. So basically, we're hoping that this kind of outlines how important the oil and gas industry is holistically for the state's uh, prosperity. Is what it, what that kind of illustrates. Right. the 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 one that people have a hard time wrapping their head around is that one of the funds that is a diversion of oil taxes is called the resources trust fund. And, and so then once it's in the resources trust fund, the resources trust fund is paying out for water projects. It's, it's kind of like it's laundered, right? I mean, it's not saying from the oil tax trust fund, it's saying from resources trust fund, but the resources trust fund is now made up nearly entirely of oil tax revenues from, from the extraction tax, which is the second of the two taxes that we, that we charge at the wellhead. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you see a very robust system of rural water in our state, and we we see a lot more uh, co- um, a lot more contribution to local projects now, like like diversion flood diversion pro- projects and flood control projects, like in Minot and Fargo. The federal government has does not have the money that it used to have. Where you see large diking projects around cities like Mandan, Devils Lake, um, and you know Valley City, those areas that are along rivers, they, those 
those projects were done with federal money. Those dollars are not available today. So we have oil tax. We have the resources trust fund where we can actually put a lot of money in from the state level and then try to not tax overtax the locals on their share of the project. And, and that that's not available in other states that don't have extra funds like we do from the oil and tax activity. There, our former state engineer, uh, most recent state engineer, was, was also state engineer down in South Dakota. And, and I asked him how the work was done down there, and he said 100% with local borrowing and property tax increases. And so, you know, the, our water rates, our, our, our property tax burden from water development is, is almost zero compared to other states because of having the blessing of having those those oil tax dollars in the resources trust fund. So that's 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 unique. That's unique to North Dakota. Well, wow, and well, it definitely sounds like something that the uh, the North Dakota and the average North Dakotan taxpayer would be very much interested in uh, knowing about with all these other changes that have you know been going on since January and what that could mean for the industry and the revenue that it comes of it because couldn't that mean less revenue then to pay for these services later is kind of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So even with the with uh, what happened during COVID. For a real-world example is, is um, that the governor and I co-chair the State Water Commission. So I, I ended up chairing. You can imagine the governor was a bit busy during the COVID times. And so oh, yeah. I, ended up chairing, I ended up chairing the Water Commission meetings. And and we're, we're given an appropriation to, to expand and invest the oil tax revenues that are coming in over the biennium. And what happened was the forecast was was expecting around 17 to 18 million dollars a month. And with the COVID demand destruction, the oil barrels went from a million five to seven or eight hundred thousand. And the price of oil went from 60 bucks down to 10, 15, eight for one month, realizable dollars. And so the, the revenues for what the Water Commission went from 17 million down to three million. Wow. And what happened was we had to readjust our forecast then okay, we're only, we were only six months into 20, a 24 month biennium when that hit and when those revenues crashed like that. So to think that instead of receiving 400 million for a biennium, we might be looking at 200 million or less at this point. Okay. What 200 million of projects that we had budgeted for do you not do? Which ones don't get funded? That, that ended up being a very painful conversation for the rest of the summer. And you have to approve those projects in the summertime. Otherwise, you miss your chance. Our construction season is so short in North Dakota. So we missed a construction season worrying about where that revenue would end up. And luckily, we ended up leveling off at about $10 million a month by the end of the calendar year. And now it's looking a little better. But, but the, one thing, the one thing that is the, that's kind of the dark specter over our oil tax revenue forecast now is Dakota Access Pipeline and how, how that will be resolved in April. There's a, going to be another meeting, another important hearing uh, with the, uh, the courts in D.C. and with um, federal government weighing in now with, with new cabinet secretaries and new leadership from the Biden administration and, and uh, the, the oil companies, the, the oil producers, the investors in, in the drilling rig fleet that decide what, where they're going to drill holes, they're, they're watching it very closely. So what you see today is $60 oil and we should have 60 drilling rigs and we have 15. So having 15 drilling rigs does not keep up with a million two barrels a day. It actually pushes us down more to seven or 800,000. And the thing is with the 
with the squeezing of, of supply based on the Biden administration principles and, and rules so far, the price is up. So that helps our tax revenues, but it's not good long term if you're not drilling new holes and, and working through your, 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 your formation. And so there's a, there's a concern of the revenue forecast going forward, and it's, it's basically whether or not the Apple is allowed to continue or if they have to shut it down empty the pipe and put it out of commission it's gonna there's some there's some really terrible ideas of what to do to work around it and most of them involve trucking and we went through that and from 2010 to 2015 a lot of things that i was testifying on down here were that was the were the the fatalities and the accidents and the destroying of the roads and the and the and the, the, the rail traffic moving you know the, the rail cars away from the elevator so there wasn't rail traffic to take away the wheat and so we, we all know pipelines are the safest way to transport the oil. It's the safest for the rest of society. So you can actually move wheat and, and egg commodities out by rail car. And so that you can actually drive safely on the roads. And, and so, you know, we'll, remains to be seen, but we're keeping our fingers crossed, but it'd be nice to be able to do more than that. But it's, it's uh, something where there's a lot of voices that understand that that pipeline has been there for three years, fully, per, fully legally permitted and no accidents. And so, if it's if it's forced to to close shut down i think it's going to be a real detriment to infrastructure development in our country oh i can only imagine is this is this hearing is it going to be made public is it something that uh, individuals would be able to get online and watch or uh, participate in at all it's not a congressional hearing mm -hmm. it's at it's at the it's at the uh, judge bozberg in dc so i don't i don't know how a person would watch it but we'll be hearing soon afterwards what the you know what's being said what's being contemplated and, and i know the congressional delegation is taking a look now and governor's taking a very close watch of what's happening legislators are as well you know hoping that there's something that can be done where where the um you know that the tribes here in the state are putting in a good word and and you know we're trying to work together on it and so it's it's a it's a grave concern is there anything that the uh average person would be able to do in order to kind of help get, give support for the industry in, during this process? Uh, writing to legislators maybe or? Well, I think, well, at this point it's, it's federal, you know, so it's, it's, um, you know, providing senators and Senator Hovind, Senator Kramer, Representative Armstrong support to, to, you know, to, to give it their all to do what they can and, and then asking them, you know, where the, what letters can be written to different federal officials. So this is something where during the Trump administration, we had a lot of access. And, and when the when the party switches in the White House, that that and you're of the wrong party, it, it, it that switches too. So, you know, hopefully there's there's, a, you know, knowledge from our congressional delegation of, of where, you know, might be best to, to for the, the letter writing campaigns within the federal government as well. Hmm. Hopefully. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. I, I, I'll be definitely looking forward to that information. And undoubtedly, the results will most likely be posted up on the website for the governor's office. Yes. Well, you'll you will see a press release either way whenever we hear anything. So, yes, keep keep your eyes peeled for the press releases that we put out. And, you know, the North Dakota Petroleum Council obviously will as well. And and. And there's a few a few of the media outlets in North Dakota that follow it pretty close. So yeah, it, it'll be something that you'll see you'll see information coming out from us. Wonderful. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add? Anything We've covered a lot? I guess I feel like we we covered a lot of it. And, and I thank you for your time. I thank you for the opportunity to talk about 
oil and gas and its importance to North Dakota and where, what the path forward looks like. I and mean, we could do a whole other show on what the next what the next 10 to 20 years look like as far as energy in North Dakota as well. And oil and gas will have a big part to play. But thank you for your time today and thank you for asking me to come on. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for speaking with me. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. This was right. brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Jenica. I appreciate it. All right, my friends, that was Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford of North Dakota, um, who obviously has quite some extensive background knowledge and uh, history within North Dakota and the oil and gas industry there. So I hope you enjoyed the content. If you did, make sure to check out the links in the show notes and be sure to also check out the rest of what the crewlife.com has to offer.